0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I have with me Daniel Gehry, the Mark Piggott Associate Professor in U.S. History at Trinity College Dublin. His book, Beyond Civil Rights The Monahan Report and Its Legacy, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is the topic of this show. In his detailed and illuminating reception analysis, Gehry argues that Patrick Monaghan's 1965 report The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, was neither a conservative or liberal document, but rather a conflicted one whose internal contradictions reflected the breakup of the liberal consensus and its legacy. The ambiguities of the report allowed multiple interpretations from both the left and the right and marked the emergence of neoconservatism. Conservatives used the report to rally against the liberal welfare state and promote African-American self-help. Liberals saw in the document the need to go beyond legal equality to aggressive economic intervention through training programs, job creation, and the family wage. The extensive and long debate involved issues of family structure, the source of social pathology, and the culture of poverty. African American civil rights leaders split over the report. The black power representatives attacked its white sociological perspective that failed to take into account how black people themselves saw the situation. Black feminists protested the portrayal of black women as domineering matriarchs and the male breadwinner model. By the time of the Nixon administration, fatigue over the debates had Monaghan arguing for benign neglect rather than national action, believing in an unfolding of progress evident in the black middle classes. After 50 years, the reverberations for the Monaghan Report continue as Americans wrestle with the relationship between race and economic inequality and the unfinished business of social equality that moves beyond civil rights. Here is my conversation with Daniel Gehry. Now let me introduce you to the author, Daniel Gehry. I have the pleasure of having Dan with me today in person. Welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Oh, it's wonderful to be here.
0: Thank you for joining me in discussing your book, which is a very interesting, I think, very interesting book. It brings out many salient issues that are really still in play today, and especially in the late 20th century. So before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write beyond civil rights.
1: Well, let's see. I grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia, and the past several years have been teaching overseas since 2008 in in Ireland at uh, Trinity College. And this is uh, Beyond Surprise, my second book. Um, it wasn't the book I thought I was writing uh, at the time. I thought I was writing a larger book about the history of sociological ideas in public policy. I was going to take, span the whole 20th century, I mean, what, this the late 19th century. And uh, while well, researching, one of those chapters was going to be on the Moynihan Report. When I got into the archives, the Library of Congress, this is maybe 2008, uh, I found just a uh, tremendous wealth of materials, um, uh, not just detailing one hand views, but the responses to him. Um, and I realized that even though lots of people had written about this report, that there was a whole story that really hadn't been told. Uh, um, and that's, that's really how I came to write it. And then I guess also thinking about the 50th anniversary coming out this year, in 2015, uh, realizing that there would be some discussion, you know, around the report and a, a good time to sort of assess its, uh, to assess its, its, both its origins and its legacy.
0: So tell us something about Moynihan. Who was he?
1: <laughs> well, Moynihan, uh, you know, he when he writes the report in 1965, I mean, he he's Irish-American or uh, Irish-German-American, uh, Catholic, um, grows up in New York City. His uh, so central event of his town is his father, uh was from a pretty comfortable middle-class family until his father abandoned the family when Moynihan was a um, young child. And that sort of sent the family into the Great Depression, uh, sent the family into a very precarious economic state. But he works his way out of that, uh, especially during World War II. Um, he uh, goes into the uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps uh, in the Navy. The um, Navy pays for his uh, education, his BA. Then he goes on to uh, get a Ph.D. at Tufts at the Fletcher School there, um, basic training for a political career. Uh, and uh, was active in New York politics uh, and is then hired into the Kennedy administration of the Department of Labor. And eventually, by the time he writes the report, he's a uh, Assistant Secretary of, uh, of Labor, but he's not, even though he did have a degree in political science, you know, he's, he's someone who has an academic background and a political background. But interestingly, one thing he doesn't really have, uh, we'll probably get to his writing Beyond the Melting Pot, but one thing he doesn't really have, he writes to, uh, when, at least when he's in the early 1960s, is any expertise on the um, issues of race.
0: Okay, so when he goes into writing this re- uh, report, he's looking, he's looking strictly at economics. Is he an economist or not? What He's is his political speech? scientist in the okay.
1: background, yeah.
0: So what is your argument, major argument about this report, the Moynihan Report, and what he did and what he was trying to do?
1: Well, so the Moynihan Report, uh, it's officially called the, the Negro Family, the Case for National Action. Um, this is a 1965 report by the Department of Labor that Moynihan writes more or less on his own initiative. Uh, hoping to attract the attention of some policymakers in the in the Johnson administration, which he, he does, in fact. Um, and I'm not sure that there's, you know, that the, the you can say there's any single clear intention that Moynihan had. I mean... So you know. he
0: didn't really intend for it to be published? Did he write it as sort of a, a career move, like to show his superiors what he knew, what he had gathered? So... Exactly. Yeah, I
1: think it's a, it's an internal memo, Um uh, as I say. You know, no one told him to write. He decided to write on his own. Uh, he had uh, picked up, you know, certain ideas, um, partly from writing this book, "Beyond the Melting Pot," with Nathan Glazer in 1963. Which I think it's very important for, for Moynihan. That's a book about New York City ethnic and racial groups. Um, sort of exposes Moynihan to. Um, some of the issues facing African-Americans. Also, this is a period in the 1960s where people like Moynihan, who maybe had not very much personal experience with African-Americans, very little training dealing you know, with African-American issues. You know, this is the, the sort of the heart of the civil rights movement. You know, he realizes this is a major, a major policy issue that the Johnson administration has is how it's going to respond to the civil rights movement uh, Pass the Civil Rights Act, but, uh, you know, there are broader issues that the civil rights movement is putting on the table in terms of full equality, especially economic equality. And Moynihan thinks he's got a, a perspective on that that would be useful to uh, officials in the Johnson administration.
0: Okay, one thing I want to uh, focus in on first is really his ideas, what yeah. he thought, and then we'll talk about the reception okay, of, the, of the book or what became a book. Yeah. So... He had he wanted to uh, he wanted to overlook race is one of the things that you talk. He wanted to really talk about class. Yeah. But in doing that, if he was going to talk about class, he zeroed in on black underclass and didn't seem to be. Did he deal with it at all in his report about the white underclass?
1: Which- he does. He doesn't. No. I mean, he focuses specifically on you know, reports on on the Negro family, and he sort of assumes that he makes the assumption that. Uh, white family structure is is fine; it's not a problem. So, um, um, yeah, it's a curious report because, on the one hand, the one concerns are in some ways fundamentally about economics and class, but on the other hand, the way that he presents the report tends to um, r- racialize um, right. racialize issues.
0: So he's really kind of overlooking maybe a huge number of Americans who are in poverty who are white.
1: Um, he does in the report, I think he thinks you know he's concerned about that elsewhere I think he's he's maybe hoping to use the issue of Negro families in the context of the civil rights movement to advance more universal uh, measures that would have benefited all Americans, but the way that he presents the data you know really presents it as uh, an african american problem
0: okay does how does he rep- how does he represent really the liberal consensus position at that point?
1: I think, uh, well, in, in, a, in a number of ways. I mean, one is um, simply, I suppose, his placement, you know, that, that, that the, the idea that armed with knowledge, you know, knowledge that he gathers from social scientific experts from the government, you know, that, this, that it's, it's up to sort of technocratic elites really to solve social problems. Um, and then someone like Moynihan with, you know, not a lot of experience in the issue can come along and, and see the right way to, uh, to do things that so the federal government uh, is able to solve these, all these issues also as part of the, I think the liberal consensus at the time. Um, and, but I think there's, there's a sort of broader tension or contradiction among liberals when confronted with the full issue of, of Racial inequality. I mean, it's. I don't think it's true. As some people have said that that these liberals are in some ways colorblind. I mean, they're aware that the Civil Rights Act is not going to bring about equality, but at the same time, the way that they believe that um, equality can be brought about doesn't, I think, you know, really tackle the sort of the deep structural roots of, uh, of of racial inequality. I mean, they're looking. You know, Moynihan's approach is to say, well. If we're going to achieve equality, then African-Americans are going to have to compete on, other, on equal terms from other groups. And how are we going to sort of raise their competitiveness? So he's really focused on improving African-Americans rather than, say, on improving uh, the social structure as a whole.
0: Okay. Nemoinihan really thought of these African-Americans like they were just another immigrant group.
1: He, he does treat them according to that model. Yeah, so that's, I mean... But he they, to...
0: the only problem is they had been here for <laughs> two or 300 years. So, uh, did he know any African-Americans? What was his experience with African-Americans? Or were they just sort of, a, you know, a white person's image of in, in their, his mind about what African-Americans were about? What was his knowledge of them?
1: I think that... Um... He didn't have a great deal of personal knowledge, you know, of African-Americans. He doesn't see that really as a problem because he thinks that they could be understood in terms of broader statistics. Um, you know, he went to school in, in East Harlem and um, certainly would have known some African-Americans, but there's no evidence to suggest that he had any friends that, for example, that were African-American. He, he talked to some, some af- African-American experts on the topic, you know, some of whom had similar views to, to Moynihan. But uh, but really, he is viewing things. This comes out of the, his book with Glaser uh, on Beyond the Melody of the, the European immigrant group experience. You know, he's Irish-American. He sort of claims it as the basis of his expertise on racial issues more generally, including dealing with African-Americans. And, uh, the, you know, the argument is that, um, you know, European immigrant groups were able to succeed in American society because of certain Um, strengths that they had, uh, the ability to work together as a community, and features like strong family structures. And he's worried that uh, African-Americans, their route to success as a group is going to have to be the same as the other European-American groups, but he's worried, looking at family structure, he's worried that they don't have the same characteristics that will allow them to succeed.
0: Now, in his report, he ends up Talking about things like the buzzwords "culture of poverty" and "social pathology," yeah. which he relates to a breakdown of the, an African American family structure. What was his model? What that he was comparing African American families to?
1: I mean, Moynihan very much, uh, quite openly supports the uh, the kind of the male breadwinner model. Um, you know, he, his ideal family is one in which the the man is the principal uh, breadwinner, in which women. Uh, um, are focused primarily on the primary responsibilities. He's not from women working, you know, before they have young children or even afterwards, but he thinks, you know, when they're young children, the family should be at home full time. Um, and so that's his sort of normative family model. Um, and in a way, you know, by saying that many African Americans fail to achieve this model, he was, he saw this as a way, I, I suppose, of highlighting racial injustice, you know, uh, how terrible it is that, you know, uh, African American mothers have to be in the workplace.
0: Okay. So, w- in a nutshell, can you tell us what this report says? Can you just sort of give us.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I think the thesis of the report is that um, African American, well, what one is saw as weak and in effect uh, deteriorating uh, aspects of African American family structure, reflected especially in out of wedlock births and high rates of female headed families, that this was the factor that was going to prevent African Americans from achieving equality. That, uh, you know, you assume that equal opportunities have been given, but unlike these European immigrants we talked about before, African Americans weren't prepared to take care of these, to, to take, um, advantage of these opportunities because of, uh, 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 this uh, weakness in family structure, which he saw as weakening both individuals, you know, children, and their capacity to develop, as well as the community
0: as a whole. Now, he had a, he also proposed in that report, is that correct, uh, a lot of solutions, a bunch of – uh, yeah. a, a, a bat, bread basket of solutions, you know, including uh, military service, job programs, guaranteed income, education. Uh, talk about those a little bit, about what his proposals were, and how did they, re- they reflect the thinking of the time?
1: Well, we know uh, some of the – I mean, the report actually doesn't have any proposals in it, which caused some confusion over it. But we know about – you know, if you read it closely, you can tell what he's advocating. And and if you read his memos from the time, you can tell what he thought, which he hoped the government would do. So one thing, as you mentioned, is uh, increased recruitment of African-American men in the military, Um, giving them jobs, but also giving them, uh, as morning put a discipline. Um, he also favored, um, public works programs like the uh, WPA and the new deal to provide guaranteed employment to, to men. So again, so they could serve as family breadwinners. He knew, however, that Johnson didn't support that. And so he never actually never proposed that to Johnson. And, and in fact, that proposal or that idea that he had was, was always dead in the water as a policy idea because he knew it wasn't going to get support. Uh, he also supported a, a guaranteed annual income uh, replacing the existing system of, of welfare aid to families with dependent children with a uh a payment to all to all families in one hand he saw this as shoring up um intact families rather than making payments to um single mothers in effect
0: okay let's talk a little bit about this uh cultural poverty and social pathology yeah um uh, did poverty, did he believe that poverty caused family breakup or did family breakup cause poverty?
1: Um, that's, it's, I think that Moynihan was confused exactly on this issue of cause and effect. Um, and of course, it can be true, uh, in theoretical terms that it could be both, you know, uh, but from a policy perspective, it made a big difference which one he was emphasizing. So, you know, if you see, um, Weakness and family structure, basically, as a result of economic um, insecurity, of poverty. Well, then you're going to wind up with solutions saying, uh, "You know, we need to improve economic equality. We need jobs programs. We need income programs. Um, that sort of thing." If you take it the other way around and say, as Moynihan did at times, that it's actually family structure that's creating poverty. Uh, you know, well that lends itself to people who say, well, this is this is an issue of of values, of culture, uh, and improvements in family values and cultural values need to come from African Americans themselves, uh, which is an interpretation that many put on the report. So I think the report can be read in in both ways, uh, as far as that cause and effect goes. And I don't I don't think that Moynihan himself was very clear about which he wanted to to emphasize.
0: Do you think that because he was writing this as an internal memo, he that he didn't uh, develop his ideas as fully as he would have if, if he had written it as a formal uh, book for you know publication? And that therefore, he leaves a lot of things undefined, uh, makes a lot of statements for are just hanging there without any resolution. And that this is really what ends up really biting him and you know
1: biting him <laughs> back. I think that's partly it. I mean, it's a very weird uh, document. Um, on the other hand, it must be said that, you know, Moynihan plays a pretty key role in, in making this document public. So he, you know, he didn't, he, you know, he, he probably could have taken the position at a certain point, you know, um, let's not release this thing to the public. You know, I want to, I want to do it again. You know, um, I want to write a different thing that we make public. He never said that. So he, I think that he was genuinely, um, you know, had generally had different conflicting ideas and was confused in his own mind and hadn't sorted these things out. And he's not a, you know, uh, it's a political document. Um, you know, he's more than a very smart guy for sure. He's picking ideas up from academia, but it's not a scholarly paper and it shouldn't be read as such. It probably wouldn't have, um, you know, even though some of the ideas accord with what some social scientists said at the time, some of the the lack of rigor or some of the use of statistics probably wouldn't have wouldn't have passed muster in a in a sort of peer reviewed uh, journal article.
0: Okay, so what? How did the report get into end up being published?
1: So, um, yes, yeah, so the report come, is finished in March. Uh, and It gets the attention of of uh, Johnson and of Johnson's advisors, especially people like Bill Moyers, who was his press secretary at the time. Uh, Then uh, it actually informs a major address that Johnson makes at Howard University in June of 1965. Uh, After that point, it's probably inevitable that the report would become public because it was the basis for this address and, you know, uh, people in Washington knew about it. Uh, Over the summer, you know, sort of leaks come out about the report. Uh, Moynihan himself uh, gives the reports to the New York Times, uh, although he said it did, he did it with the White House permission. Um, and then finally, it's sort of the Johnson administration decides uh, we're just going to make this publicly available because it's, it's already being talked about in the press. So let people let people see it. That's in, in August uh, of 1965, just just after the Watts uh, uprising.
0: OK, so those report gets published and all of a sudden, wow, <laughs> it's an explosion. In yeah. terms of responses from uh, uh, from across the ideological yeah. spectrum, from all different quarters, people having strong reactions for or against, in ambivalent, people switching sides. They, they believe what you know. One thing about the report when they start, and then when the controversy continues, they switch sides. Like, oh yeah. no, it's not as good as I thought it was. So let's talk about that conflict because I think that was a really interesting part of your book. Uh, all the different. Facets, including you know the African American response, which, which is not monolithic. No. So let's talk about that response first. Yeah,
1: I think it's a very it's a much more, um, as you say, a complex issue than um, than it's been portrayed before. I mean, uh, I felt a little bit you know in trying to figure out the, the reactions, like uh, you know those Russian dolls, where you keep opening one and there's another one and then there's another one inside it. That it's a little bit like this. That there's so many different. Layers, you know, to the reception of the report, partly because, uh, of the manner in which it's released, you know, it's out in the media first and a lot of people hear about it through the media sort of secondhand hand before they can get their hands on the report. Even when the report is out, they don't have enough copies to give and people don't necessarily know how to purchase a government report. It's so like can get it at the bookstore. Um, but mainly I think because, um, it's just of the ambiguity of the report itself and of the historical moment in which it comes out. You know, I mean, this is a sort of a key moment. The Civil Rights Act has been passed. The Voting Rights Act has been passed. It's lots of writing gets, gets a lot of attention. And for a moment in the fall of 1965, it looks like the report is the Johnson administration's approach to racial issues. And people are trying to figure out, well, if this is the report that's informing what the administration is doing, what does it mean? Does this mean that the administration is, as some people said, does this mean the administration is sort of gearing up for uh, a new round of legislation that's going to go beyond civil rights legislation to look at uh, economic programs that are going to especially target, um, especially benefit African-Americans? Or is this report a rationalization uh, that's saying, um, oh, that problem is rooted in family structure. It's rooted in these in the and the family structure is rooted in deep seated problems going back to slavery and discri- you know and discrimination and a long legacy. And there there's really nothing that the government can do. Uh that this is sort of it's gonna be up to African Americans themselves to improve their culture or improve their family values. So those are the as I see it, the two competing interpretations of the and get um all kinds of people, you know, coming at it from one or other perspective.
0: Right. So now you've got this first, you have civil rights leaders who uh, can kind of concur with him on this and go, yes, um, African-Americans need to shore up their families and strengthen their communities. We need to self-help. Yeah. Uh, black power movement people, on the other hand, are saying what?
1: Well, I mean, I think the. Civil rights leaders like—I mean—they don't have a problem with the with the self help aspect of it. Some of them don't. Uh, but what they really like about the report is they think, okay, the Johnson administration is going to do going to do something. It's going to do something more. It's going to provide. Um, um, in fact, a lot of people supported um, self help from different perspectives. But what they really liked is they thought, okay, well, this is this is a case for devoting more resources. To, to, to strengthen in the, the family. Yeah. yeah. Through
0: economic programs, They're exactly. going to strengthen the family. That's it. Uh, in other words, strengthening the, the black uh, male head of household model.
1: Yeah, that's exactly Okay. It. okay. But black power leaders, um, well, certainly they, it's not the self help that uh, uh, disturbs them necessarily. I mean, in fact, the, the Nation of Islam initially hails the report and they say, well, Moynihan's just saying what Elijah Muhammad's been saying for years. You know, uh, and of course, the Nation of Islam um, very much supported, you know, male-headed families. Um, and so they they like the report from that angle. They dislike other aspects of it. But what black power leaders like Stokely Carmichael really dislike about the report is the, the way that Moynihan and other privileged whites had this power to kind of define African-American social life. You know, that here's this guy who has little personal experience with African-Americans, little expertise. uh, And he is presenting a certain image of African-American families. Um, And, you know, so people like Carmichael say this is, this is not people like Moynihan shouldn't have the power to do this. You know, it should be up to African-Americans to get to define the terms by which they're understood in the public at large.
0: Now, at the same time, you've got uh, black studies and other things coming up, so you have black sociology that yeah. seems to be kind of encouraged by this uh, report, but basically saying this report is based on white sociological studies With their, you know, presuppositions and their views of family life, and it doesn't really consider black families within their own internal system of values. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about black sociology. That's it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's and this is one of the sort of longer term impacts of the of the report that you know we're going. This goes on into the, you know, mid to late seventies at the at least you know where people are responding to the Moynihan report, Um, and it very much spurred. Uh, a kind of a counter movement, counter studies of African-American family and social life. There's uh, one of the guys who was involved in in trying to refute Moynihan was a guy named Robert Staples. And when I interviewed him, he said, although he completely disagreed with Moynihan's interpretation, he said, you know, Moynihan gave me um, the ability to say these things. I mean, he wasn't even necessarily as interested in African-American family structure per se, but he said there was such interest in, Publishers to get an, an African American scholar could write on the issues of Moynihan and identify that basically it opens up the space for him to to criticize Moynihan. What what Stables and others um, say, and they don't necessarily all agree. Black sociologists, especially on what the family model, what the proper family model should be, but what they say is, you know, Moynihan has judged African American families from a white perspective. Um, he doesn't really understand what the values of African American families are. Um, and that they should be judged in their own terms, um uh, and in their ability to, uh, basically to survive, um, living within a racist society.
0: Or even develop alternative kinship ties or ways of, of structuring families that are not, uh, two parents. Well, there's
1: some who say that too, who say, well, look, the, the nuclear family model is, uh, you know, is, is deeply problematic, uh, and that there's a, an African-American family model that's based on, as you say, extended kinship, uh, network and ties that it may in some ways actually be superior to, um, you know, the, uh, the nuclear family norm.
0: Yeah. Because there's more, more people involved. For instance, in a child, it's not just the parents, the two parents, it's the aunt, the grandmother, it, yeah. the uncle, all these people that are involved. So it's not just two people by themselves, nuclear family.
1: Yeah. And it's based more on, um, you know, cooperative ties rather than on right. uh, competition. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, you know, obviously some of those portrayals are, uh,
0: romanticized. Yeah. Quite romantic. You know, <laughs> yeah. Quite romantic. Yes. But, yeah. So uh, let's look at the black feminists. They responded to this too. Yeah. Uh, what was their response to the report?
1: Well, I think it's a really key text for black feminists. I think black feminists are too often left out of the histories about the Moynihan reports. So I wanted to, uh, to include them because I think they really are the reports most as a third going and in some ways significant uh, critics because, you know, they criticize it from, from all angles. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, both in terms of its portrayal of African American life, picking up the, sort of the critique of the black sociology movement uh, but also criticizing its gender ideology, uh, and the, the way that it portrays African-American women as, as matriarchs. That's the term that Moynihan used.
0: As a negative, in
1: a t- negative in, term. In a negative term, yeah. Right. I mean, Moynihan does, you know, Moynihan does say, well, they're forced to be matriarchs. It's not their choice. If they, if, you know, they'd love to be, you know, housewives, <laughs> uh, like, uh, you know, suburban, uh, middle-class whites if, if they had the economic possibility. But, uh, he clearly sees it as, as a negative. And and he so, see,
0: yeah, he sees he sees to, uh, strong women as a negative.
1: Yes, he sees that as
0: a negative and yeah. and instead sort of saying it as a positive uh, role in a community.
1: Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so well black feminists have a different whole different lines of critique of this actually. Some say, um, what are you talking about? African American women do not have a great deal of power in their community. You know, they face a great deal of sexism from African American men and they they're not empowered in any way. Uh, other, others say, well, actually, Moynihan is, he's, he's not right about matriarchal, but he's right that there is more, uh, more balanced power, uh, power relations among, uh, men and women and, and African American families. So this is a good thing. We should be celebrating this. It's the, uh, you know, it's a patriarchal model. That's the one that's messed up. Uh, but I think for black feminists, the Moynihan Report is such an important symbol because there were many, um, African American uh, radicals, male radicals or black power, uh, radicals who, uh, were strongly critical of Moynihan but still supported patriarchal families, you know, would talk about the, um, um, castration of African American men, uh, and the need to, uh, build African American men as powerful figures, including in their families. And black feminists say, look, um, what you're saying, it's what Moynihan's saying. And they all, they all hate Moynihan. So, by sort of making that point, like you're you're just agreeing with Moynihan, uh, it's a very powerful argument that they can make uh, against them. Yeah.
0: There's also the issue of the family wage, is there not? When you're talking about African American women are in the workforce, they're working, and Moynihan's mm-hmm. coming in and saying we want to make it to where the woman can stay home and yeah. the man's going to support the wife. But feminists are going to say, wait a minute, we're workers, too.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: And you're going to overlook the economic part. You're going to favor men economically.
1: Well, Moynihan, he specifically favors taking jobs away from African-American women, giving them to African-American men. I mean, he, you know, he doesn't, it's not in the report, although it follows the logic, but, you know, but he supports that. And some African-American feminists like Paulie Murray, they recognize that and she's on it and Already in nineteen sixty-five, and they say, um, you know, this this is crazy. I mean, African American families rely on women's income. There is nothing wrong with women working, and instead of trying to, you know, uh, improve opportunities just for African American men, maybe we could try to improve the, the sort of the wages and working conditions of the African American women who are actually already supporting their families. So
0: now, the thing that he was that he uh, Moynihan was uh, concerned about with black families such as single parenting, cohabitation, working women, are all things that since then have become mainstream. It's very interesting because now it's really the mainstream of the middle.
1: It is. I mean, it's one of the things that, um, to me, when people talk about the Moynihan Report in contemporary, you know, culture, Mm -hmm. that there's a kind of disconnect that, um, you know, that the family model that Moynihan supported is no longer the norm. Um, and you can't really understand, his report doesn't really make sense at all if you don't if you don't support the sort of the male breadwinner norm. Now, of course, there are some conservatives who harken back to the Moynihan report and say, and they like that aspect of it, you know, they, that uh, they're quite open about one of the reasons why they like the report is the sort of patriarchal ideals. But there are a lot of people, you know, liberals and other sort of, Centrist types who support the Moynihan report and hail it as prophetic, but they kind of fail to grapple with, uh, you know, with its its sort of gender ideology, and they fail to say whether, you know, are they do they agree with Moynihan that we should go back to this, or how how can this report work if you discard that?
0: Yeah, because you still hear a lot of people talking about the family today. Uh, pundits, political pundits yeah. talk about it like Moynihan. Moynihan, you know, just this. Two people with two kids with in the suburbs with jobs, and which is a very very small minority now.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that I think that's true. It's not, uh, and I, you know, it's very. Um, if you look at the, like the sociologist William Joyce Wilson, uh, African American she really is a uh, a liberal, and um, he's done a lot to revive the report in liberal circles. Uh, you know, but he. He clearly uh, uh, supports this male breadwinner idea, but he doesn't own it the way that Moynihan does. I think he says in his book, The Truly Disadvantaged." he says, well, among whites, if there's a divorce, that's a good thing because it's allowing women to escape a bad marriage. But it's like a terrible catastrophe for African-Americans. So it doesn't even, like, it doesn't add up, (laughs) I guess.
0: Yeah, does it it come to the economic argument that uh, divorce is expensive and the only people who can get a divorce and not suffer you know, terrible consequences or people who have, are, are fluent. Is, is there something, something in that?
1: Um,
0: I it's think, expensive to get a divorce. It's true. Yeah. yeah. And uh, to have children yeah. when there's divorced parents. So that maybe, uh, the more, uh, more fluent you are, the easier it is to do.
1: Yeah. I think there's, there's part of that. I suppose it's also, um, you know, a, a reason that would explain lower marriage rates among, you know, lower class Americans as well. The, right. You know, uh, mm-hmm. um, the expense of, well, ain't getting married, but then. The, and
0: getting divorced. Yeah. And getting <laughs> divorced. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> and then, which also leads you to, uh, I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't, sh- you know, I'm not a sociologist who studies African American families, but I don't, I don't, I wouldn't share the sort of romantic view of, you know, that was, exists in the 1960s and 1970s, but I also don't think you could just take the statist- a statistic like, oh, this, you know, these are the marriage rates and, ex- and, a, ex- uh, and assume that that explains what the family structure actually is because it could be that you have intact families or you could have family, you know, or uh, that they're just not, you know, man and women are together, they're just not married. Right. Or you could have a case where uh, they're not married, but, you know, there's still a man involved, you know. Uh, right. Um, I think it's, it's very problematic to do what one hand did and say, and as a lot of commentators to do today, say, well, this percentage, you know, single parent families, you know, uh, uh, this means this, you know.
0: Right. So now, what do you, how much do you think that this report influenced, uh, you know, the conversation in the 1980s and 70s about, you know, uh, 1980s and 90s about family values and all this that we heard on the right?
1: Yeah, I mean the the conservatives pick up. I mean, they picked up the report in, in, uh, early on, but in the in the eighties and nineties, I mean they, they applied really,
0: it to every. They yeah. applied it no longer just to African American families; they're applying it to the whole a whole of society. And they
1: apply it to the whole society, and they say this is you know there's a, the broader problem of family values. And the report has a very effective. Um, it's very effective for conservatives in, in a number of ways, but I mean i i I guess the main way is that it explains a explains inequality uh in a way that lets um Americans off the hook for it uh, because even though you know conservatives are sort of colorblind i mean nobody uh you know would say that that there's racial equality in the united States today you know i mean it's obvious there's uh, there are obvious disparities between whites and African Americans so you need an explanation for that. It is a broader class issue, but often we talk about class issues in terms of, of uh, African Americans. Uh so conservatives say, "Well, the reason why there's inequality is it's family—you know, it's family values. It's not history of racism. It's not continuing existing structural racism. But it's 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 an issue of family values, and therefore it's sort of up to African Americans to, to solve uh, themselves. So it, it's a nice." Uh, Complement in a way a, to a colorblind ideology, and it's a convenient rationalization for inequality—not just racial inequality, but class inequality as well. Because I think that's what they're they're really concerned with, uh, you know, explaining why some people are, you know, poor and some people are rich.
0: Now, uh, how did Moynihan respond to all this criticism? I mean, he gets a tidal wave. Now, now it brings him a lot of publicity and attention and he's lecturing and he's running around talking to the media yep. and he's really, you know, giving it all he's got. Is he, what happens to him with this?
1: I mean, it, it launches his career really in an important way. I mean, I, no doubt he was, um, became a kind of lightning rod for a lot of criticism where, um, you know, like take black fan, feminist. I mean, um, there, a lot of the criticism of Moynihan were, in my mind, valid, but, you know, they're singling him out when they could be talking about a lot, of, a lot of people, you know. And Moynihan's getting the. It becomes a simple, a yeah, 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 that's right. Moynihan's getting the flat when really he was expressing the views that, uh, you know, most of the, you know, men of his, of his time and place had. Um, you know, and he was certainly hurt by, by that criticism, um, some of which was intemperate and uh, unfair. Uh, a lot of it, which was um well reasoned and valid, but you know there's no doubt that uh this is this is what within, launches his career i mean he becomes a professor at harvard uh director of a uh, uh, center on urban studies basis based on his expertise that this report had established
0: which is an awful narrow uh basis to get for him to get what he the positions that he had
1: it did it yeah It seemed I mean,
0: rather excessive.
1: Yeah, I mean, you take a guy, I mean, I talk a uh, book, there's a guy, uh, St. Clair Drake, who's a very um, um, uh, you know, fantastic uh, uh, African-American scholar, um, uh, you know, who co-wrote uh, Black, co- Black Metropolis, been around for a long time, uh, and he is just outraged that uh, Moini, he calls him an instant expert you know, on the topic, whereas Drake is uh, eventually he's hired at Stanford in the 1970s, but you know, in the mid '60s, when you know Harvard or the sort of elites are the the press, when they're looking for someone who can try to explain what's going on in African American neighborhoods, well, you know why there's rioting, you know why inequality persists, you know Moynihan's the guy they turn to. So, um, um, it, it, you know, it says a lot, I think, about the, you know, the
0: Washington Network.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's
0: an inside. He's an insider. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: Now, your book is is situated in such a very uh, critical point between the breakup of the liberal consensus and the emergence of neoconservatism. Yeah. And that's kind of where you've got it right there. That's a sweet spot, I think, of the book, placing him in the report right there in in that place. Uh, You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that, uh, in my view, there was there was no liberal consensus as such. Now, people like Moynihan believed in it and um, there were a number of things that, um, that liberals uh, agreed on, but there were also a lot of cracks, uh, it, but those cracks, you really start to see them in the mid to late sixties as liberals um, failed to be able to um, deal with, you know, a number of situations the, the top two being, you know, the Vietnam war, uh, and um, continue, you know, continued racial inequalities reflected in, in writing, uh, and that produces a, wa- a variety of uh, reactions among liberals. Some of whom sort of turn left, and others who 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 back off and sort of pick up on some of the more conservative aspects that were already there among post-war liberals. And Moyn again is one of the latter. He's a, he's a neoconservative, meaning he was in his initial used neoconservatives in the late 60s were post-war liberals who started to say, um, you know, we need to be moving rightward. We need to make alliances with conservatives um, and we need to uh, recognize that there's certain things that government can't do. That there's kind of the kind of ambitious social engineering um, you know, one of many cases you know, isn't going to work. And so Moynihan's a key articulator of those. Yeah,
0: beliefs. it's almost like they're still, they're still liberal economically and socially, but there's this cultural conservatism
1: that yes. they take up. That's right. That too. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm going to change the subject a little bit. You had talked earlier about Moynihan, one uh, of his solutions was drafting or not drafting, but uh, providing opportunities for more African-Americans into the military so they can get training and also lowering the standards. Or oh, so And giving them some, uh, for the ones who had had deficient educations, getting yeah. them up to standards so that they could uh, be in the military and learn and become men. And it was this very masculine sort of viewpoint. Absolutely. Which yeah. is interesting that he's saying this. And then, you know, by 65, we've got the, the escalation, 66, the escalation of the Vietnam War. So you have a lot more African Americans going to war and dying, which is just really tr- a tragic sort of moment there because he's trying to help.
1: Yeah, he sees himself as uh, as helping, but yeah, obviously the way that he helps is, <laughs> um, is you know, in, is, I guess points to another feature that often people want to talk about the, as being part of the report, but it quite clearly is, you know, embedded in the sort of liberal embrace of the, of the Cold War and the kind of the American post-war imperial project. Um, you know, or Moynihan he had been in the military itself that it had been a route for social advancement for, for him. And he thought this would be true for, for others. He didn't, wasn't really a big supporter of the, of the Vietnam war uh, itself, although he wasn't an outspoken critic of it either, but he, you know, still saw this as a, as a route to advancement. And this is one of the things that earned him. We talked about the nation of Islam before they, they kind of like his family ideology, but they they really hate that suggestion. Um, and there's, uh, Louis Farrakhan goes to, to do a long interview with Moynihan. They print it like in five parts in the, in Muhammad speaks, the, the Nation is on paper. And one of the interviews, uh, you know, Moynihan says something like this, well, you know, I would need more African American men in the military. We'll give them jobs and job skills. Uh, and they illustrated this with, uh, it's basically like a picture of death with the, with a scythe. And then it's an African American soldier, um, uh, Bury Vietnamese in a mass grave, so it's not it's not at all subtle so uh, uh, you know they really call money into to, to tasks for saying, do you think that improved you know job opportunities are uh, you know going and, and murdering you know Vietnamese peasants and you know, you know risk. Well, kind
0: because of interesting, because uh, you know, World War II, African Americans were joining the military because they wanted to show that they were patriotic, and they felt like if I show my patriotism by joining the military, I will, I will show that I am a full fledged, worthy citizen of the United States and have all the rights and responsibilities. Yeah. Until they come back, and they're denied so many of their civil rights after they fought the war. But now he's telling them, go to the military. We're gonna the military is <laughs> gonna make you into a man, and what's going to happen is a lot of African American men are going to fight the Vietnam war and die.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's really ironic and tragic.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously not something that Moynihan had uh, predicted, you know, when he wrote the right. report, uh, you know, but on the other hand, as I said, it must be said he's in this, you know, he's very much part of this, you know, cold war framework that produces uh, a Vietnam, um, you know, so he's uh, responsible for it, you know, in, in that sense.
0: Um, now, after they have this very lively debate, it eventually it kind of runs out of steam, and Moynihan ends up uh, proposing a sort of benign neglect. Yeah. Or that's the term that ends up in something he writes.
1: So, this is a memo he writes to, to Richard Nixon when he's in the. Richard Nixon makes him his kind of mm, one of his major domestic advisors. Uh, because, you know, Moynihan post-reported established himself as a sort of expert uh, on, specifically on, you know, African-Americans and on explanations for um, the growth of, uh, of rioting in, uh, in urban areas. Uh, and so Moynihan writes a, a memo to Nixon that's later leaked, um, much like the report, uh, in which he says to Nixon, we need a period of benign neglect of discussing race, of basically things have gotten we're too overheated on both sides, um, and then we should just stop talking about uh race and, and try to make quiet progress. Now clearly this I think was partly rooted in Moynihan's understanding of his own personal experience in the Moynihan report where he thought, you know, my goodness, you know, like uh you try to discuss this issue, you know, you do, you just get it from all sides. Um you know, but when the one this is leaked, um especially in the context of, you know, Nixon's um, civil rights policies and this backtracking on, uh, you know, a number of civil rights uh, measures. Um, and the federal government really, by this point, had really stepped – you know, there was a, maybe a moment in the mid-'60s where people were saying, well, the federal government can really uh, have some kind of massive investment in um, – Urban areas uh, that would especially benefit African Americans. That's not on the table in 1970. So a lot of people, when they see this memo, say, "Well, this is basically a rationalization for the federal government stepping back." You know, saying "benign neglect." Now, he wasn't saying, you know, the government should neglect African Americans. He was saying we should de- neglect the discussion of it. But as his critics rightly pointed out, I mean, how are you going to? If you can't discuss the issue, how can you really tr- How can you really it, deal with it?
0: And you know? actually, benign neglect is actually what happened. In, in the 80s and 70s, 80s and 90s. And now we've got, a, you know, a, a racial mess in this country. Yeah. And it's almost like we've got all these unresolved issues that never got addressed, never got finished, are now coming back.
1: It does. I mean, it, the phrase to accurate, accurate, sure, accurately reflects, you know, the federal government, government policy in many ways, too. So, yeah. Um.
0: What do you think your book's going to be useful? Where do you want it? Where do you want it to fit in the historiography of the twentieth century? Where do you think it's, it fits? Um. Well, I think that I think that it fits in a number of uh, in a number of places.
1: Um, you know, one as we talked about uh, before, sort of post-war liberalism you know, and the history of post-war liberalism and uh, challenges to it and its own internal uh, tensions and contradictions. Um, you know, one obviously having to do with um, history of discussions of racial inequality, you know, since uh, 1965, uh, you know, but also broader issues of inequality as well as we talked about gender inequality, um, you know, uh, class uh, inequality. Um, you know, so I think it really, I I suppose you know I hope the book can, can tell us about some of the some of the kind of roots of the political culture of uh, of our own time, as yeah. well as some of the I suppose the genuine differences between, you know, the the political and intellectual culture of the of the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies and uh, in our own.
0: The the connections. I mean I think that there's a lot of in this report and Moneyhand's uh for career, there's a lot of points that really you see later in the 20th century you see them still see them today lots of things besides race you know economics gender like you're saying all these oh, sure, things yeah. so it's like he he represents a the conflict probably, of the late 20th century.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, my first book was a, was a biography of C. Wright Mills, and I said, when I wrote my second book, I said, I don't want to do a biography, <laughs> you know? But I kind of did. I mean, it's a biography of, of a document, of the report. Uh, and this report was, uh, you know, connected to all these different things. And I think when, you, when you're writing something like a biography or something like this study, you know, you have to go with the, with the history of that document. But with the person... Uh, you know, but you're looking, you know, if at least if coming out from my angle, you're trying to explain these broader, you know, forces, um, you know, so it's, that's, that's really what I'm after. And I don't think you can, you can pinpoint it as a, as a single, you know, as a single theme for that reason.
0: Right. Yeah. And it, it, it seems to me when I was reading it, that it kind of unleashed a lot of things that were already on, that were already there. A lot of the conflicts that were already there, a lot of ideas that people were already thinking about. He just said the report sort of opened up the floodgates for people to come out and say, yeah, okay, this is what's going on. Absolutely,
1: yeah. No, it's, uh, so it's, uh. It was he, a catalyst, a catalyst. For, a of, for a lot of different debates. Right.
0: He didn't, he didn't really create the problems. He just sort of brought them to focus. And, yeah. uh, and usually I think it's what happens a lot in history. You know, we move on. We have all these issues until something happens or some event that kind of brings everything up to the surface. Well, uh. You have been very generous with your time. I have one question for you. What are you working on now?
1: Well, um, a couple of different things. Uh, You know, one is a a project about um, the concept of integration, meaning racial integration. And, you know, where does that concept come from? What did it mean? What did it mean to different people? Uh, Mm -hmm. And how does it get discredited? Um, You know, so it would be looking at the, you know, it's probably some of the issues with the book of the sort of the civil rights era, but from the perspective of of this, you know, I, I think that historians today too often dismiss the language of integration because they say, "Well, integrationist is not really an adequate um, label to describe civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King." And I agree that I agree with that that point. But people used that term at the time, so wh- why were they using it? What did they mean? And I think it was it's one of these terms that. Was used by different people to mean different things. There's
0: also desegregation, integration, yes.
1: integration, desegregation.
0: Yeah. What's the difference? I mean, before
1: point? integration, people talked about assimilation.
0: Assimilation, and, yeah,
1: yeah. And what's replaced integration now that people won't won't talk about that? But I I, I do think it's uh, there was a moment certainly in the in the civil rights era, but also before and since, when people you know, what do they mean? What do they think an integrated society was like? You know what what was their vision of the future? I suppose. Uh, and what were the different visions of the future? does
0: that, that bring out. into the whole issue of the American melting pot? Is there a melting pot? what is the melting pot, and what does it look like? <laughs> what does it taste like?
1: yeah <laughs> I think that um yeah, I mean you know so so and it fits up with in with that as well. I mean you know ideas about how people understood immigration and, and the melting pot because you know if you if you don't have a melting pot, then how can you have integration or what would integration look like if you don't have a homogenous society in the first place? So, you know, there's a, I think there's a lot of things that could be explored from that. And I don't, I think we don't really know, you know, um, just the basic history of, of that term and who started to use it. When did they start to use yeah. it? Who picked it up? What were they, were they picking up? I mean, I think we, we have a sense of, who yeah. discredited that concept? And
0: probably, yeah. if you ask <laughs> if you ask people, what do you how do you define it? You would get a lot of different. You definitions. get a lot of different
1: answers. Yes. Um, so that, that's that's uh, you know it's quite an early stage, but I'm, I'm interested in exploring that. It's maybe an uh,
0: next book. Thank you, Dan. Oh, uh, my pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks at gmail.com. This is your host. Lillian Barger.